It is another season of What Do I Do Now? Season two, and this episode has been almost like four months in the making. We tried so hard to get it done the first time, and unfortunately, you know, due to technical difficulties, that episode will never be heard um, just because no one wants to hear an echo for like 45 minutes. So um, I'm talking with someone that I truly, truly think changed my life in regards to um, education, in regards to my train of thought and how I was going to like move into radio and how, you know, continue to use that today. So this person, I got to give credit. Like they made me who I am today. Um, I'm, and he doesn't want me to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Dr. Brad King. Yeah, I know he doesn't have his doctor, but it's okay, because he's my Dr. Brad King. How you doing, Sam? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> um, it's Again, it's, first off, it's great to talk to you again. It's It's yeah. been a long, long time, but I know we interact with each other on Twitter, on you know social media. And um, well, let's take him back to Ball State when I was uh, a student in your uh, digital storytelling class. Yeah, it's, you know, first of all, I'm, I know I say this to you all the time, but I'm just so proud of you. Uh, you are one of those people that, you know, come through your life like, yeah, I've taught you a thing or two, but like your attitude and clearly your upbringing and like all of the support and everything that you had, like you're just a good, solid dude and you do things right. And that's, uh, you know, so, yeah, I helped out a little bit, but like I was a little tiny little push on the road to you being awesome. But that said. <laughs> in that class I taught, I've told people this story so many times, like you're the best person that ever failed a class of mine. Um, it was Say it, it again. It, Cause it, I don't know if people heard that. Cause I, is, I, I, I cherish that moment and relish the fact yeah. that I absolutely did not pass your class. Um, no, no, but the um, D got the degree. Let's be clear. It's true. It's true. And you know, you came, this is, you know, we've talked about this so many times, like you came up to me at the end and, and said like, look, I didn't, you know, I didn't do all the stuff that I should have in this class, but I learned it all. Like I, I was taking it all in and, you know, you had stuff going on that happens with people. And you said like, I'm going to use this going forward in my career. We, we did a lot of social media stuff and building your own website and, and just like the philosophy and, and the sort of tools for how you build things. And this is 10 years ago, sort of when we're, you know, at the beginning of a lot of this stuff. And I'll be damned. And I like laughed because I was like, yeah, like you're going to do it. Like you had a positive attitude. You showed up. You participated. Like the fact that you didn't do all the assignments for someone like me, I'm like, you know, that's not always indicative of how much you learn. I couldn't give you a, an A because you hadn't done the stuff. So I didn't know. But I sort of knew like you were going to be OK. And then I watched you as you traveled around the country using all of this stuff to build your following and to build your career. And I just couldn't be prouder. Like it's, I point to you all the time as somebody that did education right, which is the grade didn't matter. Um, the learning and your application of it to your life and in your career and what you wanted to do mattered. And that's all you can ask for out of somebody. Definitely. And I, I got to compare this to something that, you know, one of my favorite songs right now, Life of the Party, from Kanye West teacher, Andre 3000. So, in that song, he references his art teacher and is like, hey, he, you know, he when he discovered like music was what he was going to do, he took like four months and was really not turning anything in. But the teacher understood the assignment. So I feel yeah. like I, that was my early Kanye West moment because I'm just like, yeah. all right, I really ain't doing the work. Like, let's just, let's just be clear. It wasn't great, <laughs> but I'm like, no, the concepts of it, everything we were learning. And I, one thing that stuck with me from back then is just like we're thinking that we're creatives 
back in like 2010 and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, oh no, oh no. The, to be a creative, you got like the consistent building and things yeah. of that nature. And I was like, I learned quickly, you're not a creative and that's okay. Yeah. I can be creative, but the like the entire spectrum and microcosm of like what goes into being a creative, not just you have an idea and you manifesting it. No, I'm like a constant, like it's a factory of actual yeah. things. Like that's, that's the tangible thing that I felt that, Oh, and you told us that you, you told like, Hey, so you, you think you want to do this, but are you sure? And we were like, yeah, yeah I regret. And then at the end, I'm like, Oh damn, like this, this, this ain't it at all. No. And you know, the thing that I knew that you were doing too, and why I knew you'd be okay is you were on the radio and causing trouble in Muncie which, you know, is a place that if you are a person of color, um, causing trouble isn't hard, you know, and uh, and you did it. And, uh, you know, you and, and Pope, Brandon Pope, um, uh, uh, Chris, uh, Two Black, like you were just part of that group of dudes that were building their own media and, and doing student media. And really, you could see applying things that you learned in a classroom and 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 embedding that with what you knew in your life with a. Uh, with a goal for where you want it to be. And it doesn't matter if that was, you know, you're young. And so of course you're going to make mistakes. And of course you're not going to be good at it. Like that's the whole point of being young and doing it. And you were one of that group of kids that I worked with that I was like, Oh yeah. Like as long as you keep those three things going, like what you learned, your own experience and a goal ahead of you, you're going to be fine. And like, you're a hustler, you know, like, and I'm, you know, like you work, like I'd never had to worry that you were like not turning in work because you weren't doing anything. Like you were doing everything. Definitely. And <laughs> even going back into that, what I'll say is when I came into Ball State, like shout out to former president Joanne Gora, who's you know the motto at that point in time was education redefined. And I yeah. really, really believe that what I was doing was just that. Like I didn't necessarily feel like the traditional route of learning worked for me and yeah. i mean i made dean's list at the very end but that's only when you have one class so if i can focus on one thing at a time oh yes i can gladly <laughs> proudly say i was a ball state dean's list you know receiving two times because yeah. i had one course you know over the course yeah. of you know five years at ball state um that would happen twice but that was yeah. because i when i got to something that i knew i was all the way into and yeah. basically feeding into the career that's where my focus was like I'm grateful for, you know, the political science class. I was saying I'm grateful for the English, you know, studies classes I took. But at the end of the day, when it finally got to the mass media, the T-Con department, that's when I'm like, this is where I need to be at. And that's where yeah. all of my focus and attention went. And that, as you said, when it came to the radio station, like, yes, I got in trouble at the Harvard of Muncie, Ball State. And we just got it done. Um, so, yeah. you know, when you, you can reference Brandon Pope, who's been on the podcast. We can reference yeah. Brad Gray, who's also been on the podcast. Um, it's just it's just what that was for us. Yeah. And I think that you as an educator, you as a teacher, um, really understood that and made sure your students knew that. And I think that's why, like, for me, you're the first person I speak of when it comes to, okay, who's the teacher that made a difference? And I can go back to Ball State you know, as a not so disgruntled alumnus anymore um, and can mention, you know, Brad King's the one that really made sure that I got it. And, you know, yeah. the great didn't I don't have a, um, a digital media, digital media minor, but yeah. I got everything that that minor entails. So, yeah, indirectly, I'm going to just write it in at the at the end of the diploma from now on. I mean, I'm, I'm good with that. I mean, the other thing is like 
you know, Muncie's a super white town. And a lot of the work that I did there was with the NABJ and, and with black students and just because of my background and, and who my mentor was and all that stuff. And like, I thought it was really like it. There's so many things to say about that. Right. Because um, American education is set up in this very Western way. And it's set up. We know there's cultural biases and things like that. And you get to college and, and those cultural biases for class, race, all kinds of stuff start to show up. And so for me, I was always trying very hard to like explain to people that there's lots of different kinds of ways to learn. And the fact that like Sam ain't sitting in my class and doing exactly like it would be very easy to have written you off and say, well, he's just not doing the work. He's not doing that. But and to discard all of this actual experience that in student media you were doing, that, that these things that you're building. And I knew what your goal was then. And the things that you were trying and trying to build back then were all part of that goal. And for me, I'm like, we have to, but we have to honor that. We have to both, we can't just say like, oh, we want to redefine education. And we want to make sure that like some of these cultural biases don't exist. And then fuck not, you know, and not do anything about it. And for me, I was like, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't fly. You're either, you either do what you say or what you say doesn't matter. Um, and so for me, it was always, I was always so proud of you because you reminded me a lot of me. Like I was a poor working class kid. And so when I went to college, I caused a lot of trouble and like didn't always fit into the mold, but it led me to the career that I wanted to get to because I knew what I needed, what I needed to do to to make my portfolio to make myself um valuable in the world that i wanted to go to and that was what i saw in you i'm very very grateful that <laughs> you did see that and it's um reap the bountiful benefits and harvest into what i'm doing today i definitely want to make sure i note that you were on the cutting edge even in like 2010 2011 when you know we did this hybrid learning. So I was one of your people where I wasn't in class, but had to watch, you know, you do the lectures yeah. online. And yeah. here we are in 2021, where that's almost the norm, where yeah. that wasn't so wild. It was wild to think I'm like, oh, yeah, I can come in and log in on the chat and this, that, and the other and try to learn and ask questions digitally and virtually. And now that's the the norm. That is what these new kids the, from college for all the way down to elementary school, like hybrid learning yeah. is what we're going to probably do the rest of our life, like this lifetime. I don't think we're ever going to come out of a quote unquote post pandemic education scheme because there are a lot of parents who are like, I ain't sending my kids back to school. You're going to learn from home. And yeah. even from that standpoint, I knew for me, I would check in, but I'd be, I wouldn't be focused. I'd be doing other things. And just like people working from home, like you taking a nap and you know, on the clock. And that's why you try to probably still going crazy now. But yeah. you know, what was that like for you as an educator? To, like, I'm going to try this for this, for this. And then now to see it come full circle where everyone is doing that. Yeah. And you know, like you and I have talked about this, like I didn't, I have a teaching degree, but I didn't love teaching because again, I never really fit into the mold of things like I know how I learn and it's different than just sitting in a classroom. And so I had come from Wired. I'd come from this technology background. I'd, I'd sort of always been around this stuff. When I was 12, 1984, I had a computer like I was this, you know, poor kid in Appalachia. My parents literally got me this like cheap computer. I mean, cheap by today's standards. Um, and just said, like, we think this is important. They didn't know what to do with it. And so I sort of figured it out. So I'd been living in these virtual spaces for a long time and so long before the pandemic long before people were really doing online learning 
to me, I just applied some of the basic teaching principles that I learned that we now call flipping the classroom. And if you recall, like what I would do is record lots of small tutorials, lots of short, like I didn't record a 45 minute lecture. I was like, look, you want to build a website? Like here's how you register a domain name. And that would be a two minute video. And so there were all these things because as a creative person, if my assignment is to build, and now this will sound antiquated to people, but to build my own website, not using wordpress.com, like not using something that somebody else hosted, but I actually taught you guys how to get a host and build your own site so that you controlled your content, which is the most important thing a creative person can do is control their content. You may be doing that at two o'clock in the morning. And so I needed to have that stuff available so that whenever you decided that this is the time that I can sit down and focus on this, you had everything that we needed there. If you had questions, you could always email me and I generally responded no matter the time of day, but we would use some of class time for, okay, I've done this, now what? Instead of, okay, everybody like go to this host and, and pay for that. like. It, it doesn't make sense to do that kind of rote stuff that you can do on your own so that when we gathered up as a group, we could literally have the kinds of conversations that creative people have, which is, what are we going to do? Like, let's make this time the creative time and the away from class time, the time that you can kind of experiment and mess around, right? And that, to me, is the best way, you know, again, for what I teach for people to learn. Go try it. Now everybody come back together. Let's all share what we did and figure out what to do next. Um, and so in that sense, just because of what I taught and the in the in the sort of way that I am, that online stuff made sense to me. Um, because how many times would you be doing something at midnight? Like how many times did you do your college work at midnight? Often. <laughs> right. And so it doesn't, it doesn't that is not the structure of American collegiate education, right? Like, and so giving you the ability to try things away from me, that's what learning is, right? Like trying it on your own and then coming to me and being like, that didn't work or like, holy shit, this, I did it. Like, it's great. Definitely. So one thing that you also gave me another av avenue to was to really work on a, online radio show with bev taylor and oh, yeah. um it was an experience angela taylor. it was like, angela okay. taylor and bev odin yeah bev yeah i don't i don't merge their names you did you love did. you both um just <laughs> i charged in my head and not my heart i knew a, I, both women absolutely put me in the place to be and put me in place in spaces where um even it overlapped again with um Angela being, I, I want to say she was the president of the Atlanta Dream at one point in time. So, yes, I mean, I even when I got down here, yeah. Yeah. Um, like, I was sending emails like, hey, we want to get you on the show. Like, it's just, it's crazy how, like, the connections that you <laughs> made sure of a lot of the minority students had and conversations and things like that. Like, I even to this day, um, it's, it, I look back at that point in time and I would be in Letterman and doing that live internet radio show, they're talking to agents and they're talking to people that were making things, making a difference in seeing how internet radio is not just a kind of fad thing. It's it's, it's an actual medium. Um, yeah. I prefer terrestrial. I feel like, you know, I want to be more in the community and whatnot. I'm not saying internet radio can't do that, but in a market like Atlanta, in a top 10 market, in an area yeah. that it's people have grown up with the radio um, yeah. where I didn't necessarily have that in the Midwest. 
Um, being able to do <laughs> yeah. that on a smaller scale may, makes me appreciate it on a much larger scale now. Yeah. Well, and, you know, not to, we've talked about this and like, I, it's always, I always feel um, odd as a white person when we start having this discussion, because there's some part of me that's like, well, I got some bona fides in this. Like I have spent time, like my, my career began really uh, writing for a black newspaper in California. My mentor, Bill Drummond, um, founded Morning Edition, like the first black Middle Eastern correspondent for the LA Times. Like that dude is, you know. He's been driving me for 20 years. Um, and Bev Odin, for those of you who don't know, like the Odin family are like Olympic volleyball gods. Like they had three sisters play and Bev and I went to graduate school together and her best friend, um, Angela Taylor, I think she won two national championships on the basketball team at Stanford. And she's been, I think, the president of two WNBA teams. And so they're friends of mine. And I just happened to know and they were coming through town. And we did this thing uh, with the with the, some people from the NABJ. I don't know if you were there. We had a breakfast with them. Oh um, yeah, that, we we definitely went out and yeah, spoke like that's where the connection even came from. Yeah, and they were they're great telling me they're about to launch something. I'm like, oh, I do radio. Let's let's yeah. get let's get and make this happen. Yeah. Well, you remind like Bev is so funny because um, she also has that entrepreneurial spirit and like is always. Like both of them, both of those women are just always trying to make something. And like, I turn my head for five minutes and I look back and I'm like, oh shit, you're doing a whole new thing now. Like you got this whole thing happening. And uh, I just knew that energy with you uh, was that something was, I didn't know what was going to come out of it, but something was going to come out of it. <laughs> Definitely. And I think that was really the first instance that I, even to this day, the black women in my life that have really like opened and, like navigated me to the direction I need to be going in. Cause I don't know, necessarily know if they understand like that outside of ball state was like, okay, this is real world experience. Yeah. This is what, you know, we can do this. We need you to post on social media. We need, you know, you know, generate traffic. And it was just like, this is what I know. This is the, the avenue I need to be in. And without yeah. those two black women and now translating to where I have a female assistant program director when I first get down here and then, um, working for a station that targets predominantly black women age 35 to 64. Now it's just like, there's always been a black woman that's been involved. So I would be, that's why this season, my first month was dedicated to black women. Yeah. Um, I feel like their voices, like if we listen to black women more, the world be a great, better place. They just have a, the, the thumb on the pulse of the culture, the community, Everything that, you know, needs to have concern behind it, they already know. So yeah. I feel like making sure that those individuals, those special people, those superheroes get the attention that they deserve rightfully. And they just quietly always get it done in the, in the background. I'm like, no, nah, I'm going to make sure I get those people on. And yeah. when I make it, I can't be remiss to be like, oh, well, where did I get it from? Yeah, they just like you literally starting this like digital storytelling and how I, you know, shape even this podcast, any post I do for the radio, any outside venture. It all started with someone that was like, you know, you can do this. Right. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I can do yeah. this. Oh, OK. Like, yeah. So shout out to both of those incredible, incredible women, Beth Odin and Angela Taylor. Definitely want to make sure and that makes. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's I mean, to that sort of building off that, like, I mean, of course they are. Right. Because in this country, um, they face the most adversity. Right. So, of course, they understand how things work better because they they don't have a choice. They have to. 
because uh you know america already you know we got it we're not we're terrible with race and we ain't that great with gender so if you're a black woman like you've been facing a lot of shit um for a long time and i think that it's it's important to both remember that and and why it's important to listen to black women but also we need to create spaces where like that responsibility isn't on them because that's exhausting i mean as a black man you know that and as a as a as a as a tall as a large presence of a black man you know like that shit's exhausting and it's in it's imperative for people like me to carve out spaces where like that is not always somebody else's responsibility that also that burden needs to fall on me and like you know so yeah shout out but also like white dudes like get your shit together <laughs> well as a very very light-skinned uh black person that you are um i just i don't know if there's a stronger advocate um for minorities for underrepresented communities as yourself so i definitely don't want to sit here and just be like yeah let me close something but i gotta give you your yeah. flowers too because again you helped curate you know ball state chapter of the nabj and you put together a lot of things that I think that are still thriving there today because of the foundation you put down and we were able to continue to pass on and pass on and pass on. So, um, you know, from being the voice in the room, you know, to at least get, get the conversation started, but then also understanding that, okay, well, y'all got to pick up the torch. And I'm very grateful that, you know, a lot of my peers and contemporaries that I've um, been able to have on this podcast thus far have done that and continue to, to move the conversation forward. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, like I had uh, I don't know if you knew two black when you were. at. Oh, of course. I mean, yes. Yeah. I feel like everybody knew two. Joe Clemens. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, one of the things that I did, I had this writing collective in Indiana, I used to bring people together and part of that, like people that didn't know each other in the community. And there was this huge spoken word writing community in, in, in the black community in Indianapolis that was completely disconnected from like the arts council and all that stuff. So I brought Joe in. And like literally had a dinner and like the head of the arts council showed up, you know, and it's a well-meaning white guy. He's a very nice person, but like he wasn't ever going to run across, you know, too black. And right. we had dinner and like Joe ends up getting, uh, you know, getting some stuff that comes out of it. And, you know, I, you know, too black, like he's uncompromising about stuff, which I was like, yeah, the arts council needs to hear that. I was like, this isn't going to be easy, but I'm going to help get you in the door. And then I want you to do your thing. Right. And like, as a mediocre white guy, I always tell folks like that's our job. Like my job is to go out and make sure that like the communities of people that I run around with who may not ever get together, get together. And it's I mean, that's my job. That's it is maybe the most important thing that I feel like I do in the world um, is make sure that people that I care about and the communities that I run around in and, and the people that, you know, maybe like me don't fit into the mold for different reasons different structural american reasons all have the chance to sit at the table and that's i mean <laughs> cut and dry that's what we all hope to at least have happen so yeah from the last time we had spoke um we were discussing the um derek chauvin trial we know how that ended up you know yeah. charges were you know filed and you know he was found guilty on certain charges but now going into the most recent um, yeah. public platform there's a, there's where Kyle Rittenhouse yeah. is able to cross state lines with an AR-15 yeah. um, at the age of 17, driven you know by his mom, and yeah. kills two people, injures another person, and is found not guilty 
um, yeah. in a state where once you're found not guilty, there's you know, there's no double jeopardy, you can't bring no charges back. So he is a free man. Yeah. And the I, I guess I'll speak for myself and a lot of people that I know that look like me. I'm not gonna speak for the black race because you know that's just really, sure. really um ambitious <laughs> yeah. and it's not realistic. Yeah. But um we kind of knew the fix was in once we saw the judge. We knew the fix was in once, oh, you know, right. he's yeah. those the tears that did not fall that he was trying to reach. And I'm sitting here like, oh, this this is he's this is the performance act act of it. Yeah. And white tears. Yes. And that never really even like even when he got the verdicts and trying to act surprised, like, bro, like we understand you. Hey, you got to act surprised. All right. We are. Look, we, yeah. we know it's going to happen. We, <laughs> hey, I need yeah. you to play this up. But for you, how how are you navigating through it? Just because it's we're getting ready to see potentially that happen again in the Ahmed Arbery trial, yeah. even though he's not on trial. That's unfortunately the name that yeah. you have the McMichaels and um, Roddy um, Brian, if I'm not mistaken, like it's just, it's a lot going on with that one, especially here in the state of Georgia. So in the scheme of racial tension that goes on day in and day out, and then you have major cases like that, um, that I think the world stops when we wait for those verdicts, you know, What's that been like for you? Yeah, I think the world stops for like um, in the black community. And I hate using the word community, but like in the black community for, you know, people like me, like I'm always I'm always reticent to call myself an ally. Right. Because at the end of the day, I'm still a white dude in America. And I was just having this discussion with a with a um, a woman from India the other day. Like no matter how good I try to be, no matter the goodness that I try to make. The fact of the matter is when this face and this accent walks into a room and there's black people there who don't know me, they have to worry about what's about to happen, right? Because we see the Rittenhouse trial and, and there's no consequences oftentimes for the despicable behavior of white people in this country. And so, you know, like, e like even, even if I'm quote unquote, like being a good ally, I, because of this country and because of this structure, like I am still part of the threat. Right. And that's really difficult to, we see the whole stupid ass CRT, you know, the right losing their mind about, you know, teaching critical race theory and which is not happening anyway. Uh, and so for me, I think the two things that I try to do most is one carve out space for the people of color in my life because like what i don't need to be doing right now is going into spaces that are not mine and saying hey i support you because again now i've introduced myself into a space that there needs like sometimes being an advocate and an ally is staying the hell away and saying i'm gonna just sort of stand over here and when you need me i'll be here but i'm gonna give you some space and the other thing is when i see the dumb shit that people post on you know social media i don't fight on social media but i will engage folks in in one-on-one -on -one conversations because it's we can't just allow i can't just allow white people to like be like it was self-defense and, and all the bullshit that used the talking points to come out like that at the end of the day i think is what my job is to be because i cannot fix i mean if if you are in a certain way feeling and i show up i mean yeah you know we're cool but also, there's some stuff that just needs to be talked about, you know, black people amongst black people. And my job is to allow that to happen. You know what I mean? Like, 
So it's this thing that like, I think liberal white folks want to run in and try to fix everything and show like how good of an advocate and allies they are. And I'm like, well, that's about you. That's not about what's good for people. And so I try to both tread lightly and be empathetic about what I think is happening amongst my friends and the people that I know. And also an, an ally in the sense that like, I am the person who needs to be talking to white people who are saying, you know, things that are not right because that's my job. That's my lane in this. So what you're telling me is like on Twitter, you're not going to just go to the uh, pray for Kyle Rittenhouse, um, you know, trending topic and start smoke. Cause that's what I, I like going to the smoking section and I like, you know, making sure they know that no, nah, this, this ain't going to roll like that. That's, that's me. You're non-confrontational. I just want to make sure. That I mean, I'm we... confrontational in a in a one on one way where I think I can make a difference. Like the thing is, when you blow shit up on Twitter, right, like it amplifies that to lots of folks and not to say that. We, I mean, we that we need to combat it everywhere. But, you know, I'm from Trump country, man, like I'm from the heart of it all. And so for me, I have those personal connections where I feel like I can actually make a difference by the way that I live and the way that I talk, because nobody I've told this story so many times. My family's been in Appalachia for 300 and something years. Like we founded parts of Kentucky. We were part of the group of people that made the rifle that was used in the, in the revolutionary war. There's not a person in Appalachia that got more bona fides than me. So nobody can say, and they can't be dismissive of me because I am of that world and still somehow managed to like find bell hooks. You know, and like and to like find Malcolm X and be like, oh, yeah, this is like some smart stuff that everybody needs to be reading. Right. Like and and helping create an equitable world doesn't take away anything from me. Right. Like I don't need to be fearful that like black and brown people in this country will have an equal opportunity chance if we do things right. Like that. I think that so I'm in confrontational, but just probably not in the in the way that we think of confrontation today see just the this is why i call you doctor um because <laughs> i'm sitting here just like this this wonderful thesis that you're putting together for the betterment of the communities of color and the communities um of non-conflict i just feel like that's the ultimate goal that you know i felt the utopia of the world <laughs> that we could be but yeah. you know we live in america where you know we uh, yeah. we, we we out here just wearing terrible terrible clothes we got a gucci belt on like I, you know we are ronald reagan's <laughs> wildest dream right now this is yeah. this is sort of what it is you know and it's interesting because when the black lives matter stuff was happening um and it happened here in pittsburgh i was very i was not i was happy right like i think i mean i think civil unrest around civil rights is is the most righteous thing that we can do in this country um you know, uh, and and for whatever, like, I know the politics of Black Lives Matter and, you know, there are some people like there's sort of splinter groups and, and all that stuff. But like that's internal politics. The movement itself, like I'm 100 percent, 100 percent behind, stop, you know, stop the highways, like get on the road. Like, yeah, well, inconvenience people like that's what a protest is. But I was conflicted as to whether I should go down or not. Um, and again, th like this is the sort of internal struggle that I have because. um I grew up and we've talked about this before. Like Malcolm X was like, I've got all his books. I got all his writings for a long time. I had speeches from the Audubon ballroom when he formed the organization, Afro-American unity. Like 
that was sort of my coming of age reading and listening when I was like 16, 17, 18 years old. And while he eventually changed his stance from the nation into the um, uh, organization of African or Afro-American unity, that white people shouldn't be part of the structural um, leadership. And he said, like, you know, when, when he sort of left the nation was like, well, maybe that wasn't true. I still in my head that's what i came of age in that is sort of where i and so going down like i i struggle with how do i support without seeming like i am trying to usurp or 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 introducing something um into that right. uh, i don't want it to be performative on my part i don't want to be one of those people that is just like you know yeah and then doesn't do anything in their life you know right. and it's great like protest but like i mean shit how long we've we been protesting you know like at a certain point there needs to actually be work and i don't know i know i don't know how, I, don't, I, I know i'm gonna get some grief for this but like white people like to start book clubs right and they're like we need to read more about this i'm like fuck it's 2021 what do you mean read more about it like you should have been reading about it like what are you doing what's the work that you're doing right. um and you know so the protest is great, but I'm always I'm always like, OK, then what did you do? Like, what was the thing in your life that you did? Because that's where the change happens. The protest is just the flag that, hey, something's wrong. The work comes next. And I don't think that, uh, you know, I don't know that white people do the work. I mean, I know we don't because there's not really been a tremendous amount of systemic change. This is true. And <laughs> like the other part of it is that, you know, how white people, at least in that avenue of it, haven't been doing the work. Oh, the other white people do do the work. So yeah. my not my premise is like I when I talk to people about voting and I'm just yeah. like, so why do you vote? Why don't you vote? This and you know, yeah. like, well, I'm not really not sure. I'm like, there are people that have tried to make it as easy as possible for you to understand. Ballotpedia is literally my go to because when yeah. it comes down to it. Georgians have voted six times in the last 18 months. I know everyone's burned out, but I'll be damned if one election like undermines everything I've been fighting for. So yeah. when it comes yeah. down to um, other people doing the work, I'm like the people that elected not to charge Kyle Rittenhouse with anything are voters. Those are jurors that were summoned. Something yes. in the mail came in saying, well, you got to report here for your civic duty as a resident of the United States of America. And yeah. what did those people do? Okay, I'm going to show up. But at least I know in my community, the black community, the young community, I'm like, I ain't trying to miss work. I can't do this, this, that, and the other. But this is why we have to show up. And I'm grateful yeah. that my mentor, Ryan Cameron, has always been an advocate for showing up for jury duty because guess what? You've been in certain situations where you're, like, you're hoping someone understands. If you got yeah. randomly stopped, for not doing anything wrong. They said you do all this, that, and the other. You're going to hope someone in that jurist box, 12 members of your peers, hoping yeah. like, I've been there before. I know this is uncomfortable. <laughs> I can tell this this cop's mannerism isn't right. And this, you're hoping someone can advocate for you. Fortunately for Kyle Rittenhouse, his 12 jurors were his peers. They were yeah. like, oh, we ain't doing nothing wrong. He, the judge is just like, no, we're not going to put the, you know, assault charge on him because guess what he was 17 the, 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 the type of rifle that, that wasn't the one that you can charge him it's when you have certain things working for you and judges yeah. are who we elect as well so people get to stay on as long as they want to as long yeah. as we don't hold them accountable 
that's the rub I have right now with voting, and especially here in the city of Atlanta, where I think there's almost 380,000 voters and only 90,000 participated in the wow. November election. So it's wow. like, I get people are burned out, and unfortunately, well, it's like a great thing, but it's also a bad thing. Here in the state of yeah. Georgia, um, you have to win your election outright, 50% plus one vote. And if you have a million candidates, you're not going to hit that. I, I, it's just not going to happen. That's yeah. why we had to go back for the Senate race. And that's yeah. why, you know, Senator Purdue get, got sent his, his ass sent home because he didn't get he didn't get the 50 yeah. percent plus one. There was enough wiggle room where if you don't yeah. get that majority, you got to you got to go run again. So it's it's frustrating to know that people have got like I'm a super voter and I've never been called for jury duty. Yeah, from Indiana to California to Georgia. Yeah. I've never been. I cannot wait to get that yeah. in the mail and then go into whoever I'm working for his office. I'm going to be gone because I have oh, something yeah. to do. I'm looking forward to that day. I, I'm i pretty sure I'll get Wadeered right off the, immediately. <laughs> like the process, <laughs> you know, like the prosecution is going to be like or whoever. Like if it's I, I'm I, my guess is that they're going to be like, I don't this guy seems like a wild card <laughs> like, like we don't really know what he's gonna do like you know you know like i don't i don't trust a lot of that stuff right like and and also i've been around enough like I, not only have i obviously i've been hearing stories my whole life um i've experienced some of it in my own way but like you know i'm distrustful of uh you know I see how the the incredible whiteness of being impacts a lot of stuff. And so like anybody that's like putting a jury together is going to go, yeah, not this white guy. <laughs> but you also, to your point, like the voting stuff, it's fucking insane, right? Like every, every major popular, every like big city is being targeted, right? Like is being targeted with voting rights stuff. And it's, it's very specifically, for a reason right as a feature of this system and when i talk about the work like look it's like the work should be either running for local government or like running like like that's what the work is to get in there so when shit like that starts to happen you're not standing on the outside going well that's not right because the republicans know it's not right and they're doing it because it's not right like exactly. this is not it's not an accident like they're not and the other thing that, you know, like, since we're just going to we're just going to do it like the Democrats have done a really shitty job of building the coalition that should naturally be the coalition, which is poor white people, minority communities like women, people who have faced the adverse effects of this trickle down bullshit. Right. Of this um, gerrymandered all of red line, like all of that stuff like we should some like pulling that we saw it in the sixties. Like that's the most dangerous coalition in this, in, in, that America's ever seen. And the federal government at the time did everything they could to destroy every black and white person that was trying to bring those groups together. Like that's the democratic coalition. And I think some of the apathy in the black community. And again, I hate using the word community and I certainly should not be speaking for black folks, but my guess is, and just the sort of rumblings that I've heard in my world is like, I mean, what do they do? You know, like what's the Democrat party really doing? Like who do they really represent these days? Facts. You know, they're better than, I think they're better than the Republican party. And I actually think this last couple bills that they put through, but you can't make a case to a nation on a big 
$2 trillion bill. Like that doesn't, that doesn't get like, that doesn't tell a story to the people in the, in the neighborhoods about why this shit's important, right? We're not going to see the benefit of that for five years, although the benefit will be there, but you got to have people on the ground doing the work, not just passing those bills. And I don't think the democratic party has done a good job putting people on the ground, doing work in individual communities. And I think just the political act, um, atmosphere has changed so much where at least one side has to be like, I'm just going to I'm going to say something really catchy. It, it's really almost yeah. like it flipped at some yeah. point in time. Like I remember the Democrats using like all these cool little catchphrases to get us out there and vote. And now yeah. like they've turned that catchphrase to a dog whistle for Republicans. And it's just like, <laughs> Hey, that's good. We're going to make yeah. fun of people's names. We're going to make fun yeah. of people's disabilities. We're, yeah. You are, you deserve this type of America. And this, and I'm like, well, damn, like, yeah, this, and it worked. Like, it's in some areas, like, especially here in Georgia, like, out 50 miles outside of Atlanta, you're going 50, back 50 years, hands down. So that's yeah. why you have a Kendrick Johnson's case. And, you know, there's so many other small instances that are like, you know, the mom that was apparently having an adult sleepover, a black woman, and dies. And you have someone that's, you know, looking for uh researching what the case looks like and they're like you're just a, a guard you don't you don't have access to that stuff but it's yeah. you gotta understand that when the people the the evils come to your door because there's evil on both sides it's like sure. which one is going to kill you the the the, the, the quickest <laughs> Who's, yeah. who's obviously gonna make sure hey you know i really don't yeah. care about your best interest at heart i don't care about any of that one party obviously makes that more clear than the other. And it depends yeah. on however you choose to look at life. Because, of course, there's another lens where I'm just like, no, I deserve. And this, that, and the other. And everyone should pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And this, that, and the other. And everyone has the same opportunities. And all lives matter. And those blue lives matter. And I get it all. I understand. Yeah. But <laughs> the common sense, the common core, the common foundation of government should be to serve the people. And it's yeah. so much easier to campaign than it is to govern. So yeah. that I think that's what the current administration is really, really getting a firsthand. Like it sounded all great and and like, hey, we're everything we're not is what's in the office right now. So if you like yeah. the way things are going, you have the ability to change it. Make sure you go out to the polls. And now you have the president of the United States saying he's got to put faith in the judicial system. Whereas someone would say, like, would he have said this a year ago? Would yeah. it, this has been this like it's you got to participate though that's the rub. right because i'm going to complain because i'm going to go out to the, to the to the voting yeah booth and i'm like oh guess who's not gonna like you're not getting my vote i'm just, yeah yeah well and it's in you know it's this the, the country is really bad at having conversation about race and about class and about gender and about identity and my thesis on this is that uh, sort of white nationalist America makes room for one minority group at a time to make progress. Right. And so the LGBTQ community is pitted against the black community. It's, con uh, you know, uh, so like we can have gay marriage, but then we're not going to give you voting rights. Like there, like that's just seems to be the, again, a feature of this system that always puts groups fighting against each other for like a breadcrumb of progress. Right. And that is, I think the most maddening thing because it makes equity impossible when you do that, when that is the sort of structure and it is, it, there's this white fear that somehow 
the country, I mean, obviously the country would change if you made it equitable for everybody. And, and some folks are afraid of that. It, like, like change fundamentally frightens them and, and change makes them think that they're going to lose stuff. And so they push back so mightily against stuff. I was interviewing a woman who grew up in apartheid South Africa. And we were just, you know, I was, we were talking about the sort of ridiculousness of America when like th this group of people will be like slavery was so long ago. And like, it doesn't affect us anymore as if institutional structures aren't there. But also I literally know people whose grandparents had been sharecropped. Like they were like, it's just a generation or two ago. It's not that far away. If you have old, uh, old folks in your life and their grandparents lived for a while, like, or their parents lived for a while, like it's not that far away. Apartheid South Africa is like is a it happened in my lifetime, right? And so to imagine that somehow these structures magically disappear all of a sudden is batshit crazy to me. Like I don't understand. And the only way that I think that people can feel that way is if they just don't have a diverse group of friends who they can sit down and talk with. Like when Virginia turned blue, um, uh, for Obama the first time, that was when my friend. Woody, like he and I were on the phone together and he broke down in tears because he's like, my family were slaves in Virginia. Now we just voted for a black president. And like, this was a real thing to him, right? Like, I think he's in his late seventies now, maybe early eighties. Like you're telling me that didn't affect him. You're telling me that that moment hasn't resonated in his life and didn't for a moment, give him a sense of peace that he didn't have and that he may not have even known he didn't have. Like that right. stuff is just, it's amazing to me that people are like, no, we can't teach this stuff. We It's so long ago. And I'm like, oh my God, like, has there ever been a wider thing uttered <laughs> than it's, you know, it happened a long time ago. Like, mm, that's not true. Institutional memory lives down through families. Very much so. Very <laughs> much so to the point where, you know, when they're revisiting, you know, the Black Wall Street and the massacre that happened in Tulsa, it's just like people, some people are still alive. Why, we, we can't sit yeah. here and like, oh, we're so far removed from it. No, we're not. They yeah. had kids. You're The people in these pictures are still alive. So, yeah, we're not that far removed. It's crazy to me. And, and, and with all the talk of mental health and all of this stuff, like somehow, I mean, I know Dave Chappelle got himself into some trouble. Uh, I, I think I think Dave Chappelle is really fascinating for this reason. I think he is one of the he has built. The, he was the one that sort of first got me thinking like, oh, America lets one minority group at a time make progress and then pits them against each other, pit, pits groups against each other. And his series of Netflix specials. And I realize, again, I have lots of friends in the LGBTQ um, community who who I understand were were pained by some of that. Uh, and I totally get that. Um, and that is sort of outside of my lane, but, the, but the one thing that he sort of, the one narrative thread through his whole thing was as a black man in America, nobody's ever asked me how I felt. Nobody's ever given me space to, to talk about my feelings and to, and to, and to have that be part of my manhood in a, in a public way, right? Like that's not, that is not a thing afforded to me. And, you know, like that is the one of the biggest mental health crises we can have in this country right is that we have this group of people who don't believe righteously and rightfully that there is no space for their mental health that is not a question that they get to ask in public 
Um, and that I think is like it's just, like it is a thing America isn't able to talk about. Like, when do you ever like he does that in his special? And I'm thinking, oh, we're about to have a really interesting reckoning on like black men and mental health in America, and nothing, nothing came out of any of that. And I just thought, I mean, that's kind of his point. Man, Dave Chappelle, <laughs> and actually, it ironically enough. I'm going to see him tonight. He has a screening for his uh, oh, documentary, the, the documentary, so I'll be checking yeah. him out tonight. I look forward to sharing that uh, with you on the <laughs> timeline and letting you know exactly how much yeah. he decided to push and things of that nature. So, um, yeah. one of the last He's things I want to make sure we discuss is, you know, I know we talked about it earlier was uh, when you're a creative is about ownership, and yeah. one thing we had talked about um, the first time we tried to have this podcast episode was you know, the Taylor Swift thing. And as much yeah. as I really don't yeah. enjoy her, I don't enjoy the music. What she's doing is now setting a new precedent where Ashanti's going to re-record her debut album. So she oh, owns really? her masters. So it was like, you know what? How do, is, is that going to be the new frontier? Like I, I know it's happened massively because she wasn't really given the option to buy back her masters. And especially yeah. when it comes to the music industry, the contracts you sign, the management yeah. companies, I mean, it's just, it's been it's a dirty industry. It's that ended up. It's no way you know. To, it's, unless you're independent from day one and stay independent. Once yeah. you sign to a major, you're signing away your life and then your yeah. your creative life. And you got to only make your money off when you tour your merchandise. And if you want to yeah. make money outside of the music, because the music then doesn't generate the same money anymore. So yeah. In regards to the idea and principle and foundation of ownership moving into now 2022. What do you think that looks like overall as the collective? Yeah. I mean, and you know, like I was talking to you guys about ownership way back when I was doing this. And this is a people fact. that don't know, like I, I worked at Wired from like 99 to 2003 and I covered the music um, entertainment industry. But music was sort of the thing at the time because of Napster. And I was in the I was in the courtroom the day uh, Sean Parker, who was one of the founders, he was Justin Timberlake in the movie. Uh, yes. Uh, was one of the founders of Facebook. Right. And the Napster had pushed back and this will get to your question, but they had pushed back the recording industry had sued them and said, like, there's like 100,000 songs that we own that are on this system, blah, blah, blah. And Napster pushed back and said, well, show us the copyright for all those. And the next time they were in court, I think they narrowed it down to like 13 songs. And it was really telling because I asked people like, well, why did they go from 100,000 to 13? And they said, because. Uh, and again, for your listeners, I'm sure this will not totally be a shock, but back when like in the earth, like, cause there was so much sampling going on. Right. And nobody knew record labels just asserted that they own rights because they would make like black musicians and jazz and blues musicians back in the forties and fifties sign these contracts. But nobody was really sure who owned what because things had changed hands so many times and copyright also reverts back to owners. So they could only get like a handful of things that they knew they owned the rights to. And that was the first moment where I was like, oh, OK, so the real power of a of a creator is to own your own thing. Because when you own it, yeah, you may not get the mil I mean, Taylor Swift obviously got a huge following. But like you may not be able to sell a million of a thing. But if you sell a couple thousand of a thing and it's yours and you can own it and dictate what you do with it, that's really powerful. And then I was doing some stuff with Chuck D at the time, uh, like through Wired. He had just started RapStation.com, right? And they opened up all of PE's 
back catalog. And he said, look, re- like you guys can take our stuff and remix it and release it on the radio. I don't know if it was, I don't know if he allowed them to do uh, commercial work with it, but he, like they said, we want you to use PE's work and they could do that because they owned it. And I, you know, he and I would talk about that and it was particularly in, and again, I can only speak for what I covered and the people that I talked with, but like in the black community in the hip hop community, like at that time to not have to go through a corporate structure allowed artistic freedom. It allowed, you know, um, all kinds of freedom to build and do what you want. Now, like we said, it makes it harder to get on the radio, but this was at the time when we thought streaming audio and, and radio and things like that were going to really open up venues. And for some people it did. And so even as we get into today's world where, you know, do you want your stuff licensed in a movie? Do you want your stuff licensed in a commercial? Like not everybody wants that. And if you own it, one of the great things Taylor Swift did was she told people, don't license my old stuff. If you do, I'm not going to ever work with you. Well, everybody wants to work with Taylor Swift. So she could record this stuff and literally dry up this other thing that these people were using against her. And I think that's a really good blueprint. As long as you realize it makes it more difficult for you, right? Because you don't have the machine behind you, but not everybody wants the machine behind them. And if you own your stuff, you always get to make that choice, right? Like, and that is, as a creator, the choice to me is the most important thing because you don't want your stuff ending up in a place where you don't want it. Like, you want to be in charge of that. So, I, you know, like you, I, I don't know if I've ever heard a Taylor Swift song. I'm, I'm sure I have. Um, but, man, I think it's cool as shit what she's doing because – Anytime you can go after people that hold your IP hostage, you know, I'm a fan of that. And I think right there, we're going to end this episode, but this will not end the conversation. I guarantee you, you need to follow Dr. Brad King. Um, make sure you tell him uh, all your, where they can find your podcast, how they can reach out to you, contact you, because if you don't have them on your timeline, you're doing yourself a disservice. So <laughs> go ahead and pub everything right now. All right. So uh, I've been hosting a, a, a literary podcast called the Downtown Writers Jam. Um, you can find that at thewritersjam.com. You can find that anywhere you listen to podcasts. My personal site is uh, thebradking.com. Um, and that's my Twitter handle. That's my Instagram handle, thebradking. So you can find me all there. Uh, you know, I, it's interesting because... Um, the, the podcast, the literary podcast, which is really the least literary, like we talk, we, it's basically a show very similar to this. That's where we, that, you know, I get people from all over the world and we have a chance to have very real conversations about the kinds of things that I think this country and this world need to be doing. Um, my Twitter timeline tends to be a lot of dog stuff, <laughs> but the <laughs> podcast, like that's where we get down. Like that's where we chop it up. And that there we have it. What do I do now? Season two, it's episode 18. And again, this is Brad King as one of the people that really gave me the fire that I still have to this very day. So again, thank you for joining the platform. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. I look forward to many more like this. Thank you again. Have a good day, Sam. You too.